Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. One thing I would say about prison is that prison is a very, very tough place to live. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Why should I fear death? The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. I'm really not comfortable talking about S-E-X. And need to talk about more. Money isn't real, George. I'm Anna Sale. (sighs) Sing Sing Correctional Facility is a hulking maximum security prison along the Hudson River in Ossining, New York. It's been here in some form since 1825. 1825. Open the doors. Original housing. A historical marker at its entrance says the big house and up the river were both coined here. Lawrence Bartley lives here. He grew up in Queens. He was arrested on December 27, 1990, after he was involved in a shootout on Christmas night on Long Island. This is News 4 New York at 6. He'd gone to see The Godfather 3 with a group of friends. It was 20 minutes into the film, an argument erupted between two groups of people, and then there was gunfire. A fight broke out between Lawrence's friends and another group of teenagers. Police rushed in to find four innocent victims wounded in the crossfire. Someone fired a gun. Then others shot, including Lawrence. Police said 25 shots were fired. Both groups arrived heavily armed and both groups... Tremaine Hall, a 15-year-old bystander, was killed. Prosecutors found that the bullet that killed him matched Lawrence's gun. Lawrence Bartley was 17. He was sentenced to 27 to 30 years to life in prison. Anna Yes. How are you? Nice to meet you. I met him in a conference room just off the prison's main gate. A guard walked him in. There were no handcuffs, just the same dark green pants I'd seen on another inmate. Lawrence is now a husband and a father of three, and he admits he is guilty. He's had 24 years to think about that. I've been here so long, I kind of ignore my birthday because it's reminded that I've been here for such a long period of time. And in prison, you might come across some individuals that you met early during your prison stay, and you might not reconnect with an individual until about eight or ten years later. And if I notice they are full of gray hair, it makes me look in the mirror and say, am I getting old? I was a teenager. I was in high school. My God. And when is your birthday? (laughs) I hate to even say it. My birthday is February 10th. February 10th. 
So you were 17 when the crime occurred? Yes. You were 19 when you were sentenced? Yes. And how old are you now? Right now I'm 41. 41. So thinking of the passage of time is difficult. Yes, it's tough. It's tough to do when you watch so many things change in the world through TV and and you wasn't there for it. But, you know, I did something to land me here, so... Is it over the years? Is it something like you wake up in the morning and you realize I'm in prison again this morning and you think about it? Or or does it come in waves, like reflecting on what happened? Well, it, it comes fairly fairly frequently. You know, you, you say uh, many times in my, in my mind, I say, I want to go home. I want to go home. And, you know, sometimes I wake up and say, what if I wake up and I'm in my bedroom, you know, and I wake up and I always see the bars there. And I wonder the day that I'm going to wake up and I'm not going to see the bars there. And that forces you to think about what you did to get here, what I did to get here. The moment just before I pulled the trigger and how my mind was telling me that something in the back of your mind always tells you, don't do it, just don't do it, just don't do it, just don't do it. But then part of me say, if I don't do it, everybody's going to think that I'm soft for something, that I did nothing when someone was shooting at me. So let me just fire one time, bang. And then I could at least say, yo, I did something. I ain't hurt anybody. I just fired real quick. But sometimes that real quick can turn out to be the worst, worst thing you could ever do in your life. And it was for me. Why did you have a loaded gun on you that night? It was 1990. And during that time, and the inner city was... I mean, it was a lot of it was a lot of chaos in the neighborhoods that I came from and it became like for kids my age when I was 17 years old it would be an argument about something and the end result would always be violence. So for me it was pretty much it was like uh I have this so don't mess with me. It was it wasn't one of those things where you know, I set out to do harm, I set out to hurt or kill. It was one of those things that, you know, I have a gun, so stay away from me. But if you challenge me, I will have to do what I have to do. But you couldn't say it like that. You have to pretend to be someone you're not. But the problem with that, if someone calls your bluff, then what you're going to do? How long had you had a gun? Well, I haven't had it long. I had it I, maybe uh, just maybe a month or two before. And did you? When did you realize that that someone was dead? Well, I realized it. Well, first, let me back up a bit. After the incident took place, it was a big deal. It had got a lot of media coverage, and after seeing it on the news, I saw that a boy was was hit. He was hit in his head. And I remember watching a newscast and just saying, and someone heard me say it out loud, I just hope this kid doesn't die. I hope this kid doesn't die. I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. And my mind is like, this is really for real. And, you know, I, I hope, I prayed that he wouldn't die. I prayed that he wouldn't die. But then the next day I heard on the news that he did. That's when I realized that, you know, this is something big to other people other than us. Yeah, because the public is seeing it as like, People are going to the movies after Christmas and gunfire breaks out. Right. A place is supposed to be safe. It was a time when New Yorkers did not feel safe. 
this random shooting in a movie theater came at the end of a violent year in New York, with the highest number of murders on record. Lawrence was part of a surge in the state prison population. He could feel it. During that time, the system was packed, and not many people took the time out to say, look at this young boy, he doesn't even have hair on his face. I'm going to show him how to be a man. So I had to figure these things out on my own. I made some errors along the way. You know, I um, I got into a lot. What I didn't does that want, mean? Mean that I didn't want to be victimized. So there was a couple of times that I had to defend myself. There was a couple of times I had to, I had to behave as if I was someone that I don't want you to mess with me. It was sort of like the same thing that I had to do when I was a 17-year-old out on the street. I had to at least put on that image as if, you know, I'm an individual that although I'm young, y'all don't want to mess with me. Lawrence has mostly stayed out of trouble during his time. His most serious violation was 10 years ago when he was caught with $60 in his cell. That earned him a stint in isolation as punishment. You can't have money anywhere on you. So I ended up getting locked up for that. And <laughs> there I am. I went to um, a special housing unit, which is the hold for having $60. What was that like? Ooh, it's, it's crazy because you hear people banging on walls. There's other individuals who, if you don't talk to them, they'll bang on your wall all night long. And that vibrates, that vibrates all of the galley so everyone can hear it. So it's like nerve-wracking. And, and at the same time, you know, you're dealing with a situation in which you're locked away for something that, something that you did, a rule that you broke. And that's psychologically challenging as well. So dealing with all that and sort of reflecting on where you came from, you came to prison, what brought you in the first place, then to go into prison and be in a prison within a prison, then you start to think, you know, what type of man are you? And then you start to think about the individuals around you and how they are just acting wild, for lack of a better term. Then you start comparing yourself to them. You start wondering, am I really like this? Is my mind playing tricks on me? And I'm really just one of them trying to think that I'm not. But I was able to pull myself together, and I was able to get out. It's like coming out of the shoe is, I imagine, how a person would feel when he's coming out of prison. It's like, it's like almost being free, but you're not free. How do you keep track of what's going on in the outside world? What do you have access to? We have access to television, and we have a lot of civilians that come in from the outside, and they may make mention of things like uh, Twitter and, you know, Facebook or what do you call the the one where you send pictures, <laughs> the one where you send pictures Instagram. on the cell, Instagram on Instagram. And some family members would mention that, and that sparks a lot of conversation because it's fascinating to us. You have a little computer as, as a cell phone, and when we were out there, cell phones were these big clunky things, and... Have you been on the internet before? Never. Never seen the internet. I've seen pictures of it. It's You've seen a picture of it. That's interesting. I've never yes. heard somebody say that. I've seen a picture of it, a black and white picture. What did it look like? It's like, you know, uh, someone um, 
you might want to do a research paper on something, and then you see the page in which they, the website that they go on, and then they download, it says click or something, these little icons on it on the top of the page. And from the description of everyone gives me, I know that this is what you need to do in order to get to one screen to the next. Lawrence has seen the impact of new technology. People don't write letters as much anymore, except for his dad. Lawrence says he still gets a letter once a month from him. But mostly, it's phone calls now and visits. I've been blessed enough to have some people, a uh, special woman in my life, that, that despite my circumstances, she decided to come in my life for the last 11 years now. And she comes to visit me every week, and that's how I maintain contact, mostly with the outside world. How did that romance happen? Well, her name is Ranine. I met her when I was about 13 years old, and she was 12. And we met through a friend, and we were friends at first, but being young, we started to sneak out and to see each other from time to time. I would walk her from my house to her house, and then... She would say, no, I want to walk you back to your house. We walk back to my house. Then I say, I'm going to walk you back to your house. And so we just spend the day walking from house to house. And we stayed together for about eight months. And that seemed like an eternity to a 13 or 14-year-old. And when I came upstate, she was the first person to come see me upstate, which was about nine hours away from New York City. She got on a bus on her own. Which prison was that? I was in Wendy's Correctional Facility. That's near Buffalo, New York, in Erie County. And she would get on the bus by herself to come see me all the way up there. And I knew that she was dedicated. She always called me her soulmate. And, you know, and you know, I, I felt for her, too. But I just knew that we couldn't be together because I was here. And she took her time out there to, you know, go out there and see what was out there, you know, try to find a career. She had her share of boyfriends. I get jealous, but I don't tell her that. And I try to, you know, have a straight face, be a man about it. You know, I understand. You had your boyfriends, and it's understandable, you know. You had to live your life as a, as a young woman. But it was in 2004, April 7th, and she looked into my eyes and told me that, you know, she lived her life, and, you know, she had her share of relationships, but she realized that it wasn't working, and then, you know, she questioned herself as to why. And she came to the conclusion that the reason why is because none of those individuals were her soulmate and her soulmate was in prison. So at that point, she asked me, can she get into a committed relationship with me? She decided to at least give it a try. And I was a little bit resistant at first because I was in another relationship at the time. With whom? I was in another relationship with another individual that I met over the years. But that relationship was during the rocky period. And then she just made clear, she's like, um, I know you're in a relationship, but it's, it's, it doesn't look like it's working. So how do, you, how do you think about us being together? And I said, that's perfect to me. <laughs> you know, I felt honored. And we ended up becoming becoming an item and then, about three years later, we got married, and she's been with me for about 11 years now, and it's perfect. So it's not, that's not what I was expecting, that she would come and profess her love for you, and you would say, 
Actually, I was in another relationship <laughs> at the time. <laughs> like, well, you were getting it done. How, how were you single? I had, a, I had a few women I was getting in touch with and had a relationship with, but it, in comparison to the amount of years, it wasn't a lot. You know, it was maybe three or four, and this was like within a 10-year period, you know. What was your wedding like? Hmm. <laughs> My wedding was small, as you imagine. <laughs> it wasn't the white dresses and the throwing of rice. It was, it was just, you know, her and I in a room, in a prison visitor room. She had her, her cousin as a witness, and we, and I had a friend of mine as a witness. We would just stand there, and we exchanged our vows, vows that we wrote on a piece of paper. We read it off to each other. It was simple, but it was sweet. What's your wedding anniversary? My wedding anniversary is, ironically, December 27th. It was the day that I got arrested for this crime. Did you do that on purpose? Yes, my wife did it on purpose. She said that it was, that date is such a traumatic date in my life. So she just wanted to at least turn it into a positive if she could. And she chose that wedding date to turn it into a positive. That's heavy. Very. (laughs) Coming up, why Lawrence and his wife decided to have children while he was locked up. Even before we got married, we, we talked about it. She was about 34 at the time. She hadn't had any children. And... You have to have children around that I'm time. I'm 34. I, I know. Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so you understand that you have to have children around that time. During the holidays, Lawrence says inmates have community meals. Someone makes rice, someone makes chicken, sweet potatoes, to help them make the most of it. We have a special project to help all of us make the most of the festive season by encouraging you to follow Ellen Burstyn's example and schedule some should-less time during this busy holiday season. We're creating a death, sex, and money list of your favorite books. The criteria, they have to be about death, sex, and money, all three. We've gotten some great picks so far, Madame Bovary, The Great Gatsby, The Outlander series. We'll get the full list posted by December 20th, so write in with yours at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. Our next episode comes out right at the end of the year, on New Year's Eve, a time of year when plenty of people feel awkward for being on their own. But there are so many of us. A quarter of American households are people living solo. So we're ending the year with your stories of living alone. You've written in about some of the drawbacks, but also about what makes it awesome. There's nobody to tell me not to have a dance party late at night. It's actually quite pleasing. I love it to the point of writing sonnets about it if I were the sonnet type. Curl up, roll a joint, and watch Golden Girls by myself. God, I wish I was dead. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. 
Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Lawrence Bartley earned his GED in prison and an undergraduate degree in behavioral science and a master's in professional studies. I first heard about Lawrence from my WNYC colleague Robert Lewis, who was covering another graduation at Sing Sing from a parenting class. Lawrence became a father for the first time seven days after he was arrested when his daughter Zimri was born. She grew up without her dad. Her dad wasn't there for her whole life. And the times that she would come to visit me, it was always like we were starting over because I didn't get that attachment period with her. Like when when you're very young and you're you're feeding a baby a bottle, you're hugging a baby, the baby's nudging you, smiling at you, and you, you make that sort of connection. I didn't get that connection with her at that young age. So it was like every time I see her, it was like, Someone knew a little nervousness at first, and then we begin to talk, we begin to talk. But now we have a conversation, like adults, but I always tell her, you're always going to be my little girl. I treat her like a little girl. I hug her when I see her. I feed her. She even let me feed her when I see her from once from time to time. I just wish things could have been different. You said you feed her sometimes? Yeah, when she comes to visit me, you know, I haven't had a chance to feed her as a baby so she allows me to, you know, take spoonful of whatever we're eating on a visit and put it in her mouth. <laughs> she feels a little embarrassed, but she does it anyway. <laughs> Becoming a father while you're in prison, how does that work? Well, the thing you need to know about prisoners is that prisoners don't open up to one another much. You know, it wasn't much talk about having children and things like that. So I wasn't prepared for exactly what it meant to really have a have a child, another child, while incarcerated. And my son, he happened to be born premature. So that was kind of tough. And and he had the first two or three years of his life, he went through so many physical ailments. And it was, it was like it was a traumatic experience for my wife and I. And dealing with that was like one of the worst things I ever, ever had to deal with. And it kind of made me really, 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 really think about the crime that I committed because the person that was killed was someone's son. And here I am, I have a son, and it's like, what if he was taken away from me? Part of me told myself, do I even deserve to have the opportunity to have a child? But I'm thankful that I did. You have to put someone else before you. You have to be concerned with matters of your family before you be concerned with matters that relate directly to you. That makes you a man, and that made me a man, and it made me a better person, made me more sympathetic to other people. Is he healthy now? Yes, he's healthy, and he's seven years old, and that's my little man right there. <laughs> Did it take a while for your wife to get pregnant? Or were you lucky? Actually, (laughs) 
uh, our first family reunion visit, she became pregnant, the first, very first one. <laughs> so we were lucky. And family reunion visit is, is what sort of here is conjugal visits. It's, yeah, people call it conjugal yeah. visits. How much time do you get together in those visits? Approximately 48 hours. That's nice. That is nice. Where do you go? If we have, they look like, they used to be called trailers. People even still call them trailers, but they're like modular homes that they have here. And it's about, there's six units. They're about three modular homes that have two sides to them. And you have to be a model prisoner in order to be allowed to go out of there. You have to have no misbehavior reports. You have to complete all your mandatory programs, your violence programs, your drug programs. So it's not easy. Very few people get the opportunity. But those that do usually cherish them because once you lose them, it's very hard to get them back. Did you and your wife talk about the like very key ethical question about choosing to have a child when you knew you couldn't be there every day? We talked about it. My wife is a, a dean for a middle school, so she doesn't get the top-notch pay, but she ha- she gets enough to get by, but it's very tough when you're, she calls herself a half a single parent. She calls herself a half a single parent because although I do as much as I can, it's still not enough as if I was there. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like with your son you were able to have that period of attachment? that you missed with your daughter? Absolutely. Absolutely. From the beginning, when he come into the visiting room with his a nasal cannula and oxygen, when he had his little, we had something on his toe to monitor his oxygen saturation level and his heart rate. And because of that, because he started off in a preemie, he had those ailments that we kind of coddled him more than normal. And Every moment that she got a chance to bring him to see me, she would bring him every week. And, you know, I would I would treat him like he's the most precious thing in the world. And we created that connection. Before he could even say my name, I knew that he was calling me daddy by the sound that he was making. And we always had this connection. I mean, when he comes into the visiting room, he runs to me, daddy, and gives me such a big hug. It's my boy. You know, they don't they don't really realize it's still a little bit young to really realize that their dad is in prison. But So you have a second son? Yes. Also. Yes, his name is Lawson. Lawson. Yes. How old is Lawson? Lawson is eighteen months. Little. Very little. And was that also a planned pregnancy? Yes. This one was a planned pregnancy. This one, um we decided to do it because we were older parents for my son and um my wife thought that when we're gone out of this world, you know, our son Lawrence won't have anybody because we're so much older than him. And so we figured that if we have Lawson, at least when we're gone, they'll have each other. So that was the that was the biggest reason that we had him. That kind of tipped me over into having him. Financially, I would have tried to wait, but she's also was older, so we couldn't really wait. So that's what we decided to do. When partners are bringing in newborn babies to visit for the first time, is it just in the visitor's room with everybody else? Yes, but 
One of the things that this prison has to offer is called the Family Center. It's child-friendly. The colors are just amazing. It's just like appealing to children. You have these blocks and you have these mats for the infants to lay on. They have they have a lot. And in that room is where my son walked for the first time. And I was allowed the opportunity to witness that. You know, just, just this past Halloween, you know, I had a chance to you know, try to had a pumpkin and cut a jack-o'-lantern out for my sons and dress them up in a little costume, makeshift costume, whatever we can do, have candy and have them knock on the doors as if they're trick-or-treating, just try to make their experience with their dad something special to them. I did something wrong and they didn't, so I try to make their life as, as blessed as possible. And what do you and your wife tell the boys when they come here? How do you explain it? Well, for Lawrence, I explained to him, I told him that, you know, daddy did something bad and daddy's in prison. But when I told it to him, he didn't really get it. So he he says things like, why does all the daddies in here wear green pants? You know, why do the daddies have to stand up? The town, we had to stand up in the visitor room in order to be counted. I explained to him one time that he didn't get it. So I'm waiting for that moment when he really, really gets it. So I can really explain to him because I don't want to shatter his world right now. But I don't want to lie to him. That's what I don't want to do. And I learned that in parenting class. You don't want to lie to a child and tell them that you're away at school or something like that. But when the time is right, I'll, I'll explain it to him where he can really understand it. When you think about that conversation, is it something you dread? Yes, it's not a conversation that that I really want to have because to me I'm his hero, you know. But I know it's something that I have to do, but it doesn't make it any easier. For someone who's never been in prison, like what are the dark moments like? Be more specific. Like when... When does it feel hopeless? It feels the most hopeless when your family is going through a lot and you you have to hear it on the phone that I don't have enough money to pay for the bus this month or rent might be late. And hearing it as a man, you're like, wow, man, I, I need to be there to do something. And it's the toughest when, like, my wife may go out, other husbands are with their wives, and her husband isn't here. And I hear the pain in her voice. The toughest is when she has to juggle between leaving work to take her child to the doctor, which has to be the same day as a parent-teacher meeting for another child, knowing that I'm the one that's supposed to be there at the parent-teacher's meeting while she goes to the doctor. That's when it's the toughest. Lawrence has a job in prison. He earns $15 every two weeks and saves up to buy things out of catalogs for his sons. He recently bought a winter coat and a motorized scooter. He doesn't know when he'll get out or if. It's up to the parole board whether they let me go or not. They could let me go or they could keep me here for the rest of my life. Do you know when you'll go before the parole board? Mm, approximately two years and nine months. 
Is that something you think about a lot? Lately, yes. Why lately? Well, because as we getting closer, you know, and when it, when it's getting closer, you got to realize that this really could happen. Being in prison for 24 years, it's, some, it's a bit of fear going to the parole board. It's like, what am I going to say, you know? Am I going to be myself or am I going to be too afraid to be myself? These people are here judging me. And how am I supposed to say that, um, you know, I, I did this time. I, I was involved in an incident in which someone lost his life and I should be let go. I'm like asking for something and I don't know if I have the blessing from the Tremaine Hall's parents, you know, their family. How do they feel about it? You know, I wonder. So if he's in heaven, I wonder what he feels about it. So those are things that I think of, and I don't know the answers. If the family of the young man, the 15-year-old who died, mm-hmm. hears this interview, what do you want to make sure they hear you say? I would tell them that. I'm sorry. I would say, I'm sorry. It's okay. I would say it wasn't my intention to harm this son. I would say that's nothing I would ever want any parent or any family member to go through. I would say I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask them to forgive me. Because that's up to them. But I would just hope by saying sorry, they can have some sort of closure. And know that it's just not something that I take lightly. Know that it's not something that I just did. And and I just want to get out of prison for some selfish reason. Know that I think about it. And know that it's hurtful to me. And it's a blight on my life that I could never get back. And I just wish them a good future and I hope that they was able to have some type of happiness after what I did. So you have two sons growing up in New York City, and it's a different time. But when you think about them becoming teenagers and trying to figure out how to make sure they've got the respect of their peers and also making good choices, how do you think you'll talk to them about that? I will have to give them very detailed examples of what happened to me and how I handled it and the mistakes that I made. I remember there was a friend of mine. He was my best friend at the time. His name was Malik. And we were young. We'd be hanging out somewhere we wasn't supposed to be at 15 years old, about 10 o'clock at night. We're not supposed to be out that late on school night. And his mom would just appear out of nowhere. Malik, get your behind in this car. 
and pull him in, in the car. And years later, he's out there. He's successful. He has a family on his own. And I look at the tactic that his mom used, and I always tell myself, that's what I'm going to do with my sons. They're out of my sight. I don't care how tired I am coming home from work. I'm going to go look for them. and I'm going to put them in that car and make sure they end up being like Malik as opposed to like me. Lawrence Bartley, speaking to me inside Sing Sing Prison. Tremaine Hall's family set up a scholarship fund at the High School of Fashion Industries in Manhattan, where he was a student at the time of his death. Every year, it's awarded to a student who has overcome adversity during their high school career. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Botine, James Ramsey, Chris Bannon, and Chase Colpon. Special thanks to Renine Bartley, Leslie Mallon at Sing Sing, NBC4 New York, and WNYC's Robert Lewis for their help with this episode. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale, and now so is the show at Death, Sex, Money. Find us and follow us there. Also, sign up for our new weekly newsletter on our website at deathsexmoney.org. The sign-up is right on the right-hand side of the page. All of our episodes are there, too. Lawrence Bartley doesn't go before the parole board for about two and a half years, so he's trying to combat gun violence from inside prison. He's participating in a documentary to be used in schools. There's a trailer on our website at deathsexmoney.org. He's also helped raise money to buy guns to get them off the streets. And it was hard to do because most of the men in here make about $3 a week. So we went around asking for donations. We figured that it would be kind of a novel idea for a group of violent felons to want to conduct a gun buyback. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.